This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Stephen Barr. He got his Ph.D. from Princeton in 1978 in physics, and then he went to work for the Brookhaven National Laboratory in the middle of the 1980s. He joined the faculty at the University of Delaware in 1987, and then he headed up their Bartol Research Institute in 2011. In 2016, he became the founding president of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and he is transitioning to that as a position that he will be taking over in his eventual retirement from the University of Delaware. We're very, very happy to have him here today to talk about his career and to talk about the intersections between faith and science. Professor Stephen Barr, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well, thanks for having me on, David. It's good to be here. I'm going to start with some really simple questions just to make sure that our listeners are following along with us at every point in this conversation. So when we say that you studied physics and that you have spent your time in the academy as a physicist, what is the difference between a physicist and, say, a chemist and a biologist? What makes what you have studied different from what those other scientists have studied? Well, maybe it's easier for me to say what my branch of physics is. Uh, So I'm in a, uh, a branch of physics called theoretical particle physics. And what we're interested in doing is finding out what are the fundamental constituents of matter? What are the fundamental forces by which they interact with each other? And what are the fundamental laws that govern all of that? So my branch of physics, sometimes called high energy physics or particle physics, is really uh, an attempt to find out what is sort of the deepest level of the physical world. But there are several other important branches of of physics. But I guess there's actually no sharp boundaries. There are are chemists who are called physical chemists, and they get very close to being physicists. And, and, you know, there are biophysicists who... So none of these are sharp boundaries between fields or within different subfields. But my field is uh, sort of trying to get to the the deepest layer of the onion, if you will. And so when you get to that deepest layer of the onion, you're looking at basic questions and sort of fundamental laws. When you find those, let me ask, first of all, have physicists found some of those basic fundamental laws? And, and what, what are some examples of them? Well, that's an interesting question because, well, first of all, we've gotten the, what's called the standard model of particle physics, which has been around since the early 70s, actually. It, explains an enormous amount. Just about everything you see around you, well, really everything you see around you, can be explained ultimately in terms of two things, the standard model of particle physics and Einstein's theory of gravity. Those are the two pillars of our current understanding of the physical world. Einstein's theory of gravity, of course, explains gravity. The standard model of particle physics explains everything else, okay? Now, we know that those are not the final story because there are some there's something deeper underlying that. And um, there are many very good ideas about what's underlying those. Some ideas are grand unified theories, for example. It actually may be the case that we know 
what the deepest laws are. They w- may well be something that's called superstring theory. The question is how we'd ever prove that. You see, it's, it's sort of the opposite of what I think people for a long time expected, which is that we might never find the laws, ultimate laws of physics. It may rather be the case that we have our hands on the ultimate laws of physics, but can't prove it. And we may never be able to prove it. It's, it's kind of a strange ending to the history of physics. <laughs> well, there's a lot in that that I want to dig yeah. into, but let's, let's make sure, again, that our, our listeners are following us. So you mentioned the standard model of particle physics and Einstein's theory of gravity. Right. Now, when people think about gravity, I would imagine that the layperson usually thinks about Isaac Newton and the apple falling on Isaac Newton's head. Right. And if they know anything about Albert Einstein, they know the famous equation E equals MC squared. And if they know anything about that equation, it has to do with energy and matter. Right. It's got nothing to do with gravity. So help us get from the apple to Einstein giving us a theory of gravity. Right. So Einstein did, well, did a number of hugely important things. One was the theory of special relativity, and that is E equals mc squared. That gave us a new understanding of space and time and showed that actually space and time are tied together in a one four-dimensional space-time, which is not true in Newtonian physics, uh, where there's space and there's time, and they really, in a sense, have nothing to do with each other. But Einstein did something further than Uh, special relativity, he came up with what's called general relativity, which is a theory of gravity. And the way it explains gravity is as an effect of space-time being curved. And there's actually a way to explain that in simple terms if you want me to. Go for it, yeah. Yeah, so imagine, this is just a, a little toy example. Imagine you had a perfect sphere like the Earth. Take away all the mountains and oceans. Just make it a perfect sphere. And imagine two ants were standing at the equator. And each ant is marching towards the North Pole, due north. So the ant has some little compass or something or something that makes sure he doesn't swerve to the right or the left. He doesn't swerve to the east, doesn't swerve to the west. He's going due north. So as far as he's concerned, he's going in a straight line. And each ant is doing that, and they're walking at the same pace. Well, what they're going to find as time goes on is the distance between them is getting smaller and smaller. At first, they're going to be marching parallel. But as time goes on, as they get near the North Pole, the distance between them is going to shrink and shrink and faster and faster. So in a certain sense, it looks like they're accelerating towards each other until they hit each other at the North Pole. But actually, neither is swerving. They're not really accelerating. They're each going, in a sense, in a straight line as they can, but nevertheless, the distance diminishes in ever-increasing speed. So it looks like they're being pulled. They're not being pulled together, but it looks like they're being pulled together. That's an effect of the curvature of the surface that they're walking on. And that's Einstein's basic idea, correct idea about gravity, is that the objects, if they're not subject to other forces, they, they go as straight as they can, but they're moving through a curved space-time. And the effect of that is to make it seem as if certain bodies are pulled, being pulled towards each other. Let me see if I understand. So if we were to imagine, for example, a large rubber sheet, mm-hmm. and we were to take a bowling ball or a heavy object and set it on that rubber sheet, it right. would bend the rubber sheet down 
And if we were to take then a golf ball and throw it in a straight line towards that other, it would it would start to curve. Well, it? yes, and if, or if you took a, if you try to draw a line and you try to draw it as you know uh, not swerving, it would nevertheless bend around because it's a line drawn on a curved sheet, and it, it will it will appear to bend around. And so what Einstein gave us was a way of explaining this mathematically and understanding. Right. right. Well, he had the very idea that the gravity was really an effect due to the curvature of space-time, uh, not a f- uh, and, and that is a, set, a very different way of thinking about gravity than Newton had. And everything we know, it's a very well-tested theory. So Einstein's theory of gravity is uh, certainly correct as far as it goes. Now, it probably is an approximation to a deeper theory. Just like Newton's theory of gravity is an approximation to Einstein. So if you take Einstein's theory of gravity and you apply it to things that are, A, moving very slowly compared to the speed of light, and B, moving in very weak gravitational fields, you end up getting the same answers to very high approximation as Newton. So Newton's is a good approximation in most situations to Einstein's theory, but it's only an approximation. Einstein's theory may be just an approximation to something yet deeper, which is may well be super strength theory. Well, and so let's linger there for a second because we've talked for a little bit about the standard model of particle physics. We've talked a little bit about gravity. Mm-hmm. I know that that at one point, electricity and magnetism were considered to be separate things and they were right. able to be brought together. Correct. And so when we say that you work on grand unified theories, part of your overall project is trying to figure out ways to stitch together things in the same way that electricity and magnetism were stitched together a century ago. Correct. We're trying to stitch together gravity and electricity and magnetism to find a set of equations. And if I get any of this wrong, please correct me, but to find a set of equations that help us explain it all. Right. And so, as you say, actually, um, electricity and magnetism for a long time seemed unrelated to each other. People began to realize that they had some connection in the early 19th century, that the electric currents in a wire, for example, produce magnetic fields and so forth. And then uh, in the mid in the 1860s, Maxwell had a, a unified theory of electricity and magnetism. So since then, that time he called it electromagnetism. And the deeper understanding of how they unified came with Einstein's theory of relativity, actually, which showed that uh, that which which gave a much uh, more profound understanding of how electromagnetism is how electricity and magnetism are tied together. But there are, there are four known forces of nature. One is electromagnetism, which we now think of as one force. One is called the weak force, one is called the strong force, and one is gravity. And the weak and the strong force you don't see in everyday life because they're really only significant in, at subatomic distance scales. So in everyday life, you don't feel them, but they're super important. So what's happened in the early 70s, people realized that they're way beautifully simple mathematical structures that show how the electromagnetism, the weak and the strong force, that is the three non-gravitational forces, can be given a a unified description. That they're really fragments of what deeper down is a single grand unified force. So the grand unified force, if you're at very, very high energies, or equivalently, if you're looking at phenomena at extremely small distances, much smaller much, much smaller than an atomic nucleus, you would see one force called the grand unified force. But then it sort of breaks apart into these three forces when you're at low energies. But gravity is the odd man out. It's a funny thing. Gravity is the first force that anybody knew about. You know, cavemen 
knew about gravity, you know, you fall out of a tree, that's gravity. So we've known about gravity for probably 200,000 years. <laughs> and it was the first force for which we had a good theory, which was Newton's theory of gravity in, in, you know, in, this late 1700, in the late 1600s. So it was actually the first to be understood in any, any depth. But it's actually the deepest of the forces and the one that's not, it's still mysterious, actually, whereas we have a, a really good theory of the other three. Gravity is still quite mysterious in some ways. So it's kind of ironic that this, the most obvious force, the one we thought we understood pretty well 300 years ago, there's still mysteries associated with it. And it's harder to unify it with the others. It's really a different, slight, very quite, quite different from the other three forces. And, and as I said, hard to unify with them. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Stephen Barr. He's a lifelong physicist, also a lifelong person of faith, and we'll be digging into the intersections between those two trajectories in his life as we continue our conversation. But for right now, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Stephen Barr. He is a physicist, and he works on high-energy particle physics. He is also the founding president of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and we're going to be talking today about the intersections between science and faith, both the tensions and the surprising ways in which they might be more compatible than you might think. And so let's let's take a step back. We had a, a good baseline conversation about what physics is and some of the theories that you work on. But you, you wrote a book called Modern Physics, an Ancient Faith, and one of the things that you begin with in that book is talking about the historical antagonism or maybe the perceived antagonism between science and faith. And you start your conversation with a discussion of materialism. Right. So when we talk about materialism, I think people may have sort of a rough understanding of that term, but what do we mean by that? Well, materialism is basically, well, it's the idea that the ultimate reality is matter, that really nothing else exists but matter. Everything else can be, everything can be explained as simply the interactions, the behavior of matter, everything including the human mind. And so that's what uh, sometimes in the more recently, the term physicalism has become more popular among philosophers. And that's really a version of materialism that says that nothing exists except that isn't ultimately describable by physics, by, by theoretical physics. Uh, so it's a more uh, modern version of materialism. Now, as a person who is trained in physics, that puts you in a great position, right? Because you that means that if they're right, you have the key to explain everything. Well, right. I mean, uh, you might think as a physicist, I would like the idea that everything is explained by physics. But I think that that's obviously not true. And um, it is a tempting viewpoint for people. Who, or, uh, materialism is a tempting viewpoint for people who, who, who study matter. You know, as just like for a man with a hammer, uh, everything is a nail, you know, uh, you know. 
economists like to explain everything in terms of economic explanations. Psychologists like to explain everything psychologically and so forth. Politi political scientists, everything is about power relations and so on. So there's a natural occupational hazard if you're working on thing, certain kinds of explanations of things to think that those explanations explain everything. <laughs> now, a moment ago, you said it's obviously not the case. Yes. And so as a scientist, we should always, I, I know that you should always be hesitant whenever anyone in a conversation <laughs> says it's obvious. So help me understand what's obvious about the limits of materialism. Okay, I was being deliberately provocative there. So even, even before you get to things that might have religious significance, is take some a phenomenon as basic and as uh, evident to us as consciousness. Take things like our, our sense perceptions of warmth or, or redness or the smell of a lilac or, or the sound of a flute. Or so. Those kinds of uh, what the philosophers call qualia, which are, which are conscious uh, pheno phenomena of consciousness, Consciousness includes more than that, of course, but that can't come out of physics. And I think as physics has been understood for the last 400 years, as physics has been understood for the last 400 years, it is essentially a matter of equations and quantities that you can measure and quantities that you can calculate through equations. That's what it's all about. Now, you could have a physical system there. Imagine you're on an old Star Trek episode and you go to some planet and there's some blob of purple jelly and it's going, making noises and moving around. And you want to know, is that blob having conscious experiences? Well, you could know everything there was to know about the physical structure of that entity. You could know where every particle, every subatomic particle, every electric field, everything that is constituting it physically. You could know completely the values of all those quantities. But those equate, and you could, and you know, suppose you know all the laws of physics. Nothing in those measurements, nothing about the calculations you can do from physics will answer the question of whether that thing has having any experience, has any subjectivity, has any consciousness. Let me see if I can give a, a very, very rudimentary example. So the the children's program, Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There's an episode where Mister Rogers goes to the doctor. And the doctor is going to look in Mr. Rogers' ear with one of those, I don't know the name of the scope, but mm -hmm. one of those little things where the light shines in the ear. And Mr. Rogers asks the question that any child would ask, and that is, when you look into my ear, will you be able to see my thoughts and my dreams? Right. And the doctor says no. And that's a very simple example of what we're talking about, isn't it? That we can, we can know all of the physical data about the purple blob, right. but we can't actually know the experience, the consciousness. The, right. In fact, now you, you know, some will be tempted to say, so for example, I thought you were going to say you go to the doctor. The doctor can't tell what you're feeling. He'll say, does it hurt on a scale of one to 10? And you try to struggle to put into words the, the sensations you're having. It's not a pain exactly. It's a kind of discomfort, but it's very hard to put into words. Unless the doctor has felt it, he doesn't know what you're talking about. And he could, he could study your body and dissect you. He could know, where, as I said, where every particle in your body, how it's moving and how it's interacting. And uh, he would still not know that sensation. Now, some people say, oh, but we can now look into the brain and we can see things. The neuroscientists can see whether, you know, what you're thinking or whether. No, what they're seeing is physical phenomena in your brain, which they correlate. When this phenomenon happens in your brain, 
that means you're bored. But they only find out you're bored by asking you, are you bored? And this guy says, I'm bored. And they say, okay, when this phenomenon in your brain is happening, this physical thing, that correlates with happiness or boredom or whatever, anger or thinking or seeing a color. But that core, but you can't get that out of the equations, you see. You can calculate till you're blue in the face and measure till you're blue in the face. You cannot logically or mathematically deduce whether that person's actually feeling anything at all. So there were some materialists and physicalists in the 1960s, and B.F. Skinner comes to mind, right. who wanted to deny consciousness because consciousness could not be measured in the way that you're saying. Right. You want to take the opposite tack, and you want to say... We, we, have, we have something in common that we share and we can talk about, a conscious experience, pain, warmth, those kinds of things. We, we know, you and I sitting here, we right. know that we share those things. Well, we assume that we do, and I think quite reasonably. I mean, it's sort of insane not to – but what we actually only know for sure is that we ourselves yeah. have these conscious experiences, and we naturally and quite properly – guess that other people do also. <laughs> and that, but then that would be the fulcrum point where you would part with someone like B.F. Skinner. Instead of reducing the world to physical phenomena, you want to open the world to these extra physical phenomena. Well, I would say they're, they're I wouldn't call them physics. To me, physics, uh, just my own usage, physics is, is the equations of physics. And that's what Stephen Hawking quite rightly said a, a long time ago. He said, all that physics gives you is a set of mathematical rules and equations. So for me, that's physics. Now, a dog, I tend to think, is a material entity, but there's more to a dog, because I assume that dogs have sensations and consciousness. There's more to them than the physics can tell you about. That's very mysterious. And this, by the way, has nothing to do with religion. This is a problem in philosophy. Uh, even if you're an atheist, atheist philosophers worry about this too. Well, famously or infamously, and maybe this never actually passed his lips, but it's often attributed to Albert Einstein that he says that the laws of gravity cannot be understood for people falling in love. <laughs> but that but that begins to speak to the kind of the kind of breaking point or the or the the fulcrum point that we're talking about that we can we can have equations that describe physical phenomenon. Right. But then we also have this entire other set of experiences, this other set of kind of human data right that do not fall into that category correct and this see that's what's silly about behaviorism if it's taken too far anyway i mean skinner is right i suppose at the level that you could observe the behavior of animals but that you can't infer from that that what anything about minds i mean rigorously logically you can't draw inferences but that doesn't mean the minds aren't there and we know that minds exist because each of us has one I mean, that's a very prime piece of empirical evidence. I mean, science is based on empirical evidence. There's nothing that we have more direct empirical evidence of than the fact that we have thoughts and feelings and so on. So those are facts, and we can't theorize them away. And even the fact that we're asking the questions presupposes the idea that we've right. got... Now, from a religious point of view, it's not the consciousness that's important because consciousness, presumably animals, even maybe down to very, very primitive animals, who know? That's, by the way, that's a thing. How do you... There's no scientific way to answer whether a worm is feeling anything. You know, now we all suspect and believe that dogs do, chimps do. Fish, do they have consciousness or not? How would you answer that as a physicist? There's no way a physicist can answer that question. And you get down to 
a worm where you know and and those are unanswerable questions by physics for the reasons i said because you can only measure what the physical motions are you can't measure what if we build a, somebody builds a, a a robot you know a very sophisticated computer and claims that that computer is actually conscious having feelings and sensations is aware there's well, there's the turing test but that but there's really no way you can rigorously conclude anything you could know everything that's going on inside that robot you know it's complete circuit diagram you can know all the flow of all the electrons and so on. there's no way to rigorously conclude anything about whether it, it has any consciousness or awareness but when it, the religious question comes in not with consciousness which animals have maybe even machines might someday have but reason and free will mm. what what makes us special according at least to the great religions of monotheistic religions what makes us special what makes us in the image of god is that we have something which it is claimed that no other terrestrial creatures have which is free will and reason and that's what makes us spiritual beings that that's something above and beyond just consciousness and that is also something that is claimed not to be just reducible to physics and biology and chemistry and so forth that's something uh, but that's that's where it gets Free will is much, and again, free will is something I would claim that we know we have because we exercise it. It's a direct experience of of, of exercising a power there. I don't need to infer that. I, I know I have free will. And so let me make sure that I'm tracking. Yeah. So we started the conversation with trying to get to fundamental laws of the physical world. Right. And then we said, but there are there's a category of experiences and data that mm -hmm. cannot be accounted for and explained by those physical laws. And Correct. so consciousness is one. Is one. And so consciousness may be it certainly is is shared by humans, but it also may be shared in an extra human way because animals may have it, machines may eventually have some form of consciousness. And so now you've given us a third realm, and that is the, and what would we call this the realm of soul or volition, or say, how would you I would describe say the it? The spiritual level, okay, which is reason and freedom. Now, I, I want to make clear. I think consciousness is a purely natural phenomenon. That is, a dog's having consciousness. There's nothing miraculous about that. There's nothing. It is a part of nature. Consciousness. I just say it's not coming from the equations of physics. So physics, it, 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 being a, this mathematical physics will exp explains I, I, I think almost everything if not everything about the inanimate world but there are aspects of of our physical universe including animals with consciousness which I think physics doesn't somehow completely well it doesn't it doesn't completely explain but nevertheless consciousness is a natural thing and you might argue the free will is a natural thing but it Christians believe and I, I don't speak for the other monotheistic religions, but the traditional Christian view was that free will and reason were sort of special endowments of the human person that in some sense were conferred from above, that you could, that purely biological evolution, physics, chemistry, and so on, will never get you there. Something special had to happen, has to happen, to raise us to the level of the spiritual level of rationality and freedom. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Professor Stephen Barr. He is the founding president of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and he is a lifelong particle physicist. We're talking about his work at the intersection between science and faith. We'll be back in a moment.
Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Stephen Barr. He's a lifelong particle physicist, and he's also the founding president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. We're talking about the intersection of science and faith. So in our last segment, we were talking a little bit about materialism and some of the limits of materialism as a way of explaining the world. Now, you have made a, a particular commitment to identifying both as a rigorous scientist and as a person of faith. Help me understand how that has, I guess, both the upside and the downside of that, because I imagine that there are some who have really embraced that identification, and there may be some who have really resisted you making that identification. So walk me through, let's start with the resistance. What are some of the resistances that you have encountered when you have tried to identify in the academy as a scientist and a person of faith? Well, actually, I've not encountered resistance or hostility for the most part. I mean, on the, uh, I guess most of my colleagues weren't aware that I was religious because on a daily basis, you're just doing your job, you know, and so people... I already was well-established as a physicist and uh, had a reputation and achievements and so on. And then before people in my field, anybody in my field knew about my religious beliefs, and I don't think they revised their view of me as a scientist as a result. I mean, now maybe it would have been different if the first thing they knew about me is I was religious. Maybe they would have been skeptical that I could be a good scientist. But I already, already, they already knew I was a good scientist before they found out I was a person of faith. I've only twice in my life ever had somebody react hostily. So I don't think that's the common reaction. It's probably more they think it was a personal quirk. You know, there's a certain live and let live. You know, okay, so he's religious. Well, that's his business. And uh, there's probably more indifference than hostility that you encounter. It may be indifference, incomprehension, that, but not really that much. At least, not that I've encountered, as I always say, I don't know what people say behind my back. <laughs> you don't know. They could be saying I'm they could be more hostility than they're, they're made, and they may be too polite to express it. I don't know. Well, and so at one point, though, you felt the need to articulate some of the way that you navigate these identities, and yeah. it, it became it became the book Modern Physics, Physics and, and Ancient Faith. And Ancient right. Faith. So tell us a little bit about what led you to feel like that was a good book to write. Well, I was I was puzzled. You know, it's funny. Um, People sometimes, Catholics, and I speak to a lot of audiences and many of them are Catholic audiences, they say, how do you reconcile being a Catholic or being a religious and being a scientist? And I have always found that a strange question. I think most religious scientists don't like the word reconcile because it implies that there's something to be reconciled, that, that there's a – you reconcile after a fight. So it implies that there's that there is some sort of incompatibility, conflict that has to be reconciled. And that's not our experience as, as scientists and people of faith uh, for the most part. We see them as deeply harmonious. So, but, you know, I, I was always puzzled because there's all of this talk in the public square about, you know, the, the, bat, the warfare between science and religion, the conflict and so forth. And there, was, there weren't that many scientists of faith responding to this. 
Plenty of philosophers and theologians, but the scientists didn't speak up, and a lot of them because they're just too busy. And maybe they felt they weren't confident philosophically or theologically to speak on these questions because they're they're modest people. They they well what they know is their work, which is science. But there weren't enough people. And I thought, well, if nobody else is going to say something, maybe I ought to say something. And I started writing about this back in the mid '90s, and one thing led to another. And eventually, I'd always had in the back of my mind it would be good for the Catholic scientists or the religious scientists in general to sort of join forces, is strength in numbers, you know, and to show the world we're here. You know, there's this misconception that the world of science is, is a sort of a spiritual wasteland where there's no, you, you don't find any faith. They're all atheists. And that's maybe because the atheist scientists have been recently rather vocal, the Steven Weinberg, the, 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 the Dawkinses and the Hawkings and so on. And so I thought, you know, maybe it's time for the religious scientists to get together and, and show the world by our existence that, no, there are plenty of scientists out there who are believers. That's the genesis of the Society of Catholic Scientists. And you say recently, and I just want to echo that, because if we look back 100, 150 years Isaac Newton actually wrote more on theology than he did right. on, on science. And James Clerk Maxwell, right. who you mentioned earlier, right, right. the whole reason why he wanted to find these unifying points was because for him that was a theological question. Right. In fact, this is a complete myth, misconception. This is actually one of the reasons people see a conflict is that they have been sold a bill of goods about the history of science. There is a very widespread myth. It's not only believed by the proverbial man on the street, but m most academics believe this. Scientists believe this. Historians who are not experts on the history of science believe this, that there's been a warfare for 400 years or more between the two, there have been two warring camps, the science camp and the religion camp. And they think of the Galileo episode and they think now about the, the fundamentalists to attack evolution. That's not the history of science. In fact, for the, from uh, the time of Copernicus and Galileo all the way up well into the 19th century, I would say, the great majority of scientists were religious. And you think of all the great founders of modern science in the scientific revolution, whether it was Copernicus, uh, Galileo, Kepler, Descartes, Isaac Newton, Boyle, and so on, Pascal, they were all men of faith. They were all people of faith, deep faith. And as you said, all the way in the 19th century, I think most physicists, if you said, who are the two greatest physicists of the 19th century, they would say Michael Faraday and James Clark Maxwell, deeply devout Protestants very devout. So, but sometime in the 19th century, unbelief became much more prevalent than it had been among scientists until now. I would say religious people are probably somewhat in the minority. But even today, there are many, many scientists who are people of faith. Well, in 2016, you helped to found the Society of Catholic Scientists. So talk to us a little bit about that organization mm -hmm. and how many members do you have and what, what's, the, what's the mission and purpose of it? So we, we've, we started, a couple of us said, well, why don't we do this? And we started in June of 2016. That's when we incorporated. And we've grown to 1,100 and something members as of today. And, that, and you have to be, unless you're a student, we have student members, but a regular member has to have a PhD in a natural science. So it's a pretty rigorous uh, membership requirement. And nevertheless, we've grown to 1,100 members. And the mission, there's a fourfold mission, actually. But the, one mission, and a very the, the, sort of the first mission, is fellowship among Catholic scientists. And that's important because in the academic world, people tend to keep their deepest beliefs to themselves, especially if they're afraid that they might be 
discriminated against based on their beliefs. And so actually scientists, even though they might be surrounded by other scientists who are people of faith, don't know that. And there's a tremendous sense because everybody's hunkering down. And so there's a tremendous feeling of isolation. Am I the only one? You know, when I was in grad school, I could not have named any of my professors at Princeton who were I did who I knew to be religious. I couldn't have named any world famous scientists alive at that time who I knew to be religious. So you get very isolated, and so and of course there are many religious scientists I just didn't know about. So it's partly for fellowship, also to witness to the world, to the harmony between science and faith, or uh, a discussion forum for questions about science and faith, and also to be a resource for the world at large. So we hope that laity, clergy, journalists, high school students, teachers, and so on will come to our website or come to us. And if they have questions, we hope to put more and more educational materials up on our website for uh, the wider public. So those are, the, those are our missions. It's, it's fighting back against, partly to a large extent, against this misperception of a conflict. And how has your, your faith affected or has it affected your scientific inquiry? Have you found inspiration or have you found overlap there? Or, or are these really two separate spheres that you just want to kind of walk together? There's a deep, they have the same root, I would say, or to a large extent. And that is, first, a sense of wonder about the world. I think religion and science are both ways of understanding reality. So as a Catholic, I would say my Catholic faith gives me an understanding of reality as, as science gives me they, a different – now, science, my physics knowledge gives me an understanding of certain aspect of reality. But there are questions about why, why does the universe exist why are there laws? Why is the universe an orderly place? What is the destiny and purpose of human life? What is our ultimate destiny? What, what about right and wrong? What about sin and redemption? There are questions it's, that the science doesn't, can't answer. But, so they have different, there are different uh, perspectives on reality, but they're, but they're not in conflict. They're just looking at it somewhat from different angles. But there, there's a common root in wonder, in a conviction that the world makes sense. Everything makes sense. See, religion is based on the idea that everything makes sense. And it makes sense. There's an answer to everything. There's an answer to questions of why there's a world. There's an answer to the question of why it's orderly. And the answer to many of these questions, and so we think the world makes sense because it's the creation of a rational, wise God. And so, you know, so at the deepest level, there's there's a harmony. But in the day-to-day work of a physicist, my faith doesn't play a role in you know solving an equation or coming up with a theory or, or something like that, except of course someone of faith uh, is will be an if he's if he's living his faith will be an honest researcher you know he'll 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 be he'll be diligent and honest and so forth. But as far as the the actual day to day work, it doesn't come in any more than it comes into being an auto mechanic or a baseball player, or a chess player, or, uh, you know, or anything else. There's the technical part of your craft. As you've helped to found the Society of Catholic Scientists and you have seen these 1,100 sort of isolated academics mm-hmm. begin to find one another, has that been satisfying? And what, what have been some of the satisfactions I, I, of that? It's been very satisfying. I, I, at our first conference, which was in, in April of 2017, and we only had about 300 members at that point, but about 100 of them showed up at our first conference. And it was like there was just a, a joy 
It was like, I think people felt like a fish who had never been in water before because, you know, they suddenly they were surrounded by other scientists in many different fields who were also fellow believers. And that sort of, you know, as, as we said, in the 1600s, that would have been the common experience or the 1700s or much of the 1800s. And it's, scientists could share their faith and their scientific perspectives. And there was no... Now in the academic world, you know, you sort of, your faith is put off to one side and and there's a sort of a natural separation in your daily life between. But here they're, they're, they, were, they were in their element, as it were. And I think there was a joy and an enthusiasm for these religious scientists, these Catholic scientists, to be together and having fellowship and just being in, in their element, I would say, <laughs> their natural element. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stephen Barr. He's a physicist, and he is also the founding president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. We're talking about the intersections between faith and science. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stephen Barr. He's the founding president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. He's a lifelong particle physicist, and we're talking about the intersection between science and faith. We have reached a point where our scientific knowledge has unlocked a lot of possibilities. Mm -hmm. So in the 1940s, we figured out how to unlock the power of the atom such that we could destroy cities. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s and 90s, we figured out how to unlock the human genome. And now we are able with technologies like CRISPR to begin to go in and snip and change the basic building blocks of human life and life in general. Mm -hmm. We're reaching a point where almost nothing is impossible. And one of the things that we might suggest as people of faith is that a benefit that a faith position could bring, and you mentioned this a little bit in our last segment, a scientist who is a person of faith, we hope, will also be an ethical scientist who will not lie about data, who will present things straightforwardly. Is there another value to faith? Is part of the value of faith saying that there should be a limit to what we should do, even if it is possible for us to do it? Or would you take, would you take a different position? No, you're absolutely right. There are ethical con- and mo- there are moral constraints on what we do. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny. That, for example, there was a point at which Catholics and other religious people were objecting to certain uh, techniques of uh, using human embryos for to get stem cells. And many people were saying, that's, see, there's another example where, scientific, where religious people are anti-science. 
it's it's not anti-science to say that there should be moral limitations. You know, we look back in horror at the experiments that were done in the Tuskegee experiments where African-American men were allowed to basically for decades to suffer and die from syphilis as part of an unwittingly, without any consent on their part, as part of a scientific experiment and the Nazi scientific experiments and so on and to take really extreme cases. But but clearly, you, just because you can do something and you might get scientific information out of it or you might actually even accomplish good, maybe helping to cure syphilis, it doesn't mean all doesn't mean anything goes. You can't just. You just can't. Science is not is not some realm which is immune from moral judgment and moral constraint. God forbid that we just allow scientists to to to, to do anything because they have the power to do it. Now I have to say our organization really isn't. There are two kinds of science faith questions. One is the ethical use of science. Uh, bioethics is an example of that. We, we our group sort of stays away from that because. We're just scientists for the most part, though we have theologians associated with us. And scientists aren't necessarily the, the, the experts on the moral questions. And so to some extent, we defer to the, the theologians and the philosophers and, and, and so on in, in talking about it, which is as it should be. Scientists are not necessarily wiser about ethical and moral questions than non-scientists. And that we're an organization of scientists. So we have no expertise, special expertise. Though we are people of faith, we have obviously share the church's moral convictions about some of these questions. But, you know, um, I don't think the answer, maybe this is going beyond what you were asking, is to sh- – often the, 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 a scientific development or a technical development that allows you to do terrible, destructive things can be the same knowledge that allows you to do great benefits, accomplish great benefits. So an example I heard uh, from a famous scientist, the same, back in the uh, early 20th century, I think his name was Fritz Haber, there was a German chemist who came up with a process for uh, fixing nitrogen. And it had the, it made possible the use of uh, the development of high explosives. And this was just before World War I. And one of the reasons tens of millions of people died in World War I was because of the development of high explosives, which was made possible by Haber's breakthrough. But the very same breakthrough that led to this massive murder on a massive scale also made possible fertilizers, which have been able to support the life of billions of people and improve the lives and the health of billions of people. One in the same scientific breakthrough. And so... That shows that it, the answer is not to sort of stop science from learning new things. What you do, science should be allowed to learn new things. But the question is, once you've learned it, how are you going to apply it? And that's when you, you should say, no, these applications are wrong. And, and this is where the political authorities have to often come in and say, no, you can't apply it in this way. You don't, we don't allow chemical warfare, for example, even though it could be done. People have agreed that's barbaric and so it's been outlawed and so that but but the as far as learning and even developing techniques that's not the stage at which you should uh you know cut people off and i love this this answer and i want to continue down this line of thought because earlier in the conversation we were talking about consciousness and then something beyond consciousness like the the free will or mm-hmm. volition or maybe the soul i think oftentimes we can have a very reductivist, materialist, physicalist approach to human life. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think that we could also say is valuable about taking 
our science in parallel with a religious conviction is that religious convictions can give us also a language of something like dignity. Right. That, that a human being, even if a human being is in a vegetative state, that there is something about that human being equality right. that is not simply reducible to the physical or the useful, the utilitarian, and that there's something there to be preserved. Right. In fact, see, this is the point. Uh, the, the, what's, what's opposed to religion is, as I say in my book, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, is not science. It's a certain ideology or philosophy called, called scientific materialism, which thinks that it is basing itself on science. It thinks this is supposedly the scientific view of the world, that there's nothing but matter. And if there's nothing but matter, then you and I are nothing but you know, conjuries of atoms. We're just complicated structures of atoms, just like a rat. We're just like a, a plant. And everything about us is simply uh, explained by the laws of physics that govern how those atoms move. And if that's all we are, is just particularly complicated structures made of atoms, well, then you can start doing things to people. Without, you know, Why is it worse to destroy a human being, especially an embryo or maybe uh, an infant who is newly born? After all, he can't think much and doesn't do much. You know, There's a famous philosopher at Princeton. I think his name is Singer. Peter Singer. Peter Singer, who says that, uh, I think he said a pig is more valuable than, a, say, a newborn baby. Because if, you're, if that's all they are, is complicated structures made of atoms, there's no bright line. And you can start doing things to people that you, that you would do to a plant or to a, or, to an, or to a pig or to a fish. That's the danger, is not the science, but this ideology that claims to be based on science, which is extremely reductive, and I think is at the root of a lot of, of, of this, is that many scientists, unfortunately, not all by any means, but many are imbued with this philosophy that you can it's just matter, you can manipulate it as you want. So the path for people of faith is not to attack science. Mm -hmm. The path for people of faith is to find a way to push against this ideology of materialism. Correct. That Correct. Correct. So how do we do that? Well, you have to make – well, I think uh, – I don't know the, the ultimate answer to that, except I think people have to be aware that you can be a scientist. It doesn't logically entail that you're a materialist and that, in fact, many very capable and, and even uh, you know, famous scientists – are, are not materialists, and and to break that link, and I our our well, we argue. I argue against materialism in my book, and uh, and so one thing we can do is to simply to make philosophical arguments, but also I think the witness value of scientists of faith pointing out that you can be a perfectly scientific person without buying into these reductive ideologies, that you can have a, a richer, fuller view of reality than the, than that. That also, I think, will help, um, just the example of that. And so when we're doing this, when, when, we're, when we're finding models for that in the public sphere, you mentioned earlier also the importance of laws. So should scientists stay out of the public sphere, or should they be lobbying legislators to try and get—so uh, how, how should scientists participate in the public sphere? I, I, I think they should participate— by telling people what the scientific facts are, what the, tech, what the technical capabilities are. As far – I don't think – as I said, I don't think a scientist has any more expertise in the – it should be for the general public. We're a self-governing people. It should be for the, 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 the society to make these judgments. Not the scientists themselves, but the society as a whole 
informed scientifically by the scientists. Scientists have no more moral expertise than, say, Hollywood stars. You know, Hollywood stars like to pontificate about all sorts of social political issues about which they know nothing. They can tell us about the craft of act, acting and they can tell, you know, uh, but, but and scientists can tell you, we can do this, we can do that. Here's what, why it might be important to do this, because if we do this, it'll enable us to do these other things. But the judgments should be for society as a whole to make. What is it that keeps you hopeful? And I guess let me ask this question in, in a particular way. Do you feel more fulfilled and satisfied by finding or helping to find a fundamental law of the world of physics or do you feel more fulfilled and more more hope imbued by a, an article of your Catholic faith? Like, which is the more bedrock for you? Oh, well, unquestionably my faith, because you might ask, which is more fulfilling to me, you know, writing a good physics paper or my children? Now, my children, you know, I remember one of a long time ago, our second child, when he was about one, I think he was one, got meningitis, and he thank God he recovered. But at that moment, I would have thrown away my entire physics career if if my son uh, came out of that alive because your children your family are infinitely more important to you than than your profession so but what is relationship is more important to a person than his relationship or her relationship with god for uh, a catholic for a christian our relationship with with our creator is of supreme ultimate importance so that clearly is more important to me than my physics career. But on the other hand, I feel I was given some ability in this area by God. You know, all of us have been gifted in various ways. And I have a responsibility to use my abilities to their fullest. And if I'm good at physics, then I should be, I should be, you know, doing physics and trying to do it well, as well as I can. Well, Professor Stephen Barr, I am fascinated by First of all, your work in physics, and I have a, a, a lay interest in that. I have no mathematical expertise, and so I've only ever been on the outside of these conversations. But it's been such a joy to have a chance to talk to you about that area of expertise. But the fact that you've also been able to, to bring that in line with your Catholic faith and have been able to find very fruitful ways to have those conversations across what are often perceived to be barriers, I've just really enjoyed this conversation today. Well, I did too. Thanks for having me on. We've been speaking today with Professor Stephen Barr. He's the founding president of the Society of Catholic Scientists. He has long been a professor at the University of Delaware, and he is on the way to retiring from that. We've been talking about the intersection between science and faith, and if you want to go deeper, I recommend highly his book, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.